0: Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes, beginning in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you In all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. We had a chance to look at a passage from Philippians chapter 3 last week on what it means to know Christ and what it means to know the power of his resurrection. And uh, we're going to flip back to chapter 1 in Philippians and spend some time over the next several weeks uh, hopefully teaching, preaching and meditating on this fantastic letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. And it's my desire for you to understand what the the church at Philippi, what they were going through, and more specifically how Paul was thanking God for the love that he was seeing displayed amongst the brothers and sisters the saints called out in that particular city. Um, I don't think I have to go into great detail to tell you that the church today, at least in the eyes of the popular culture, is not considered... um, a place of great affection by the world you know you don't hear people talking about the church especially outside the church with glowing accolades um, you have essentially people who either hate the church because they, they hate the institutional church the organized church because they've seen things done terrible things done in the name of Christ of course having nothing to do with the real church or the gospel of Christ himself but pastors acting badly churches acting badly and doing all kinds of antics that have... Uh, ...have caused the name of Christ to be smeared... Um, ...at the same time you have other people that are in the church... They, they, uh, ...or at least they say they are in the universal church... ...they say they like the teachings of Christ... ...they want to follow Christ... ...they just don't like Christians... ...they don't want to be around other people who profess... ...and that's given rise to what we call the home church movement... Um, ...what's impossible to do scripturally... ...is to separate Jesus Christ and his church... And when you do that, not only are you fracturing truth and fracturing scripture, but you will engage in a lie. Jesus Christ and the church indeed are inseparable, and the Bible tells us that the relationship between the two is one of a covenant marriage. And we see that in Ephesians. And so if you say, I love Jesus and I love his teachings, but I hate the church, or I will follow Jesus and I will follow his teachings, but I will not gather with other brothers and sisters in Christ then you're hard-pressed to say that you know Christ. Because if you know Christ, you know His church. If you love Christ, you will love His church. And what we see here in this passage, for those of you who are listening, the Apostle Paul has the exact opposite approach. He says, it's my love for Jesus that compels me, that drives me to love my brothers and sisters, to love the body of Christ here on earth. And we see it in such a way that Paul says, I don't love I don't love the perfect church. I don't love the sinless church. I don't love the church that's doing everything right. Paul reveals that he loves a church that is truly messed up, but has been saved by the grace of God. He says, I love the church in spite of its struggles, and in spite of its idolatry, and in spite of its lack of faith. I have a love for the church and desire to see the church grow and mature into the image of Christ, because they're not perfect yet. And so the question for us is, how how can we love the church like the apostle Paul loves the church? How can we love the church as Jesus loves the church? What what did they see? What did he see? The apostle Paul, a man like you and me, how, what did he see and know about the church that gave him such a deep, passionate love to minister and spend his whole life growing the church? Three things that I'd like us to see this morning from this passage: he saw, which we must see, our common identity, our common grace and our common love. If you have a desire, you say, listen, I I want to love Jesus Christ, and if loving Jesus Christ means I love the church, then I want to love the church, but I don't have a lot of love for this place. I mean, there are people here who drive me crazy. There are times when you're preaching pastor and you drive me crazy, and you're asking me to love you and love this church and love this people. I am. So how do I have that? Where do I get that? Common identity, common grace, common love. Let's look at the common identity first. First, the first thing we see, and it's right out of the gate, the Apostle Paul, in verse 1, chapter 1, says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Now, the word saint, if you were raised in a liturgical denomination, even as we speak, the Catholic Church is going through the process of making Pope John Paul II a saint saint. If your understanding of a saint is some old person who's already dead that they're going to make a movie about and print out these little coins with the stamp on them where you can hang it around your neck and rub the little coin and pray for safe travel and things like that, if your idea of a saint is Mother Teresa or Pope John the Paul II, then you do not know what biblical sainthood is. Because biblical sainthood is not about something that you do, it's not about your worldly achievements, it's not whether or not you fed the poor or attended church for 22 years straight. Sainthood is a relationship. In fact, the very word itself is to be consecrated or to be sanctified. Literally to be set apart. And to be a saint means that God has set you apart. He has called you by name. He's taken you out of the darkness. He's placed His love on you. His grace on you. And He now calls you His. Your possession. He says, you're mine. You're a son. You're a daughter. You belong to me. To be set apart literally. Now, this is something that he, he does to us. You cannot set yourself apart. And it's not like uh, you know, friends of ours recently, they got, they got a dog they're going to do some breeding with. It's not like you go and you see this litter of puppies and you say, okay, these are the good puppies, these are the bad puppies. They'll make good you know, puppies later on as a mom and dad and they won't. It's not a division like that. It's not based upon our inherent goodness or our inherent badness. It's not based upon your, your achievements or who you were born to. It's based upon God choosing you according to his sovereign will and saying, I pick you and I'm taking you and I'm going to pour my love onto you. And so fundamentally, you can say a saint is someone that God has chosen to pour out his grace and love upon. It's a relationship. First and foremost, it's a relationship. Now, when we think of saint, well, let me do this for you. If I say up, you say Good. Thank you, Patty. All right. How are we awake here? I say up. You say? Up. Thank you very much. Okay. If I say left, you say? Right. Okay. If I say sinner, you say saint. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fill that in because I ask you people and I go, I don't know. But for Billy Joel wrote a song um, and he talked about the difference between sinners and saints. And the sinner was the person who did the bad things and the saint was the person who did the good things. Right? So-and-so is a sinner, and that person is a saint. And we think about achievements and morality and how we live according to an ethical paradigm. But that's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says, unless you recognize you're a sinner, you cannot be a saint. You must know first and foremost that you're a sinner before a holy God. And then in that sinful state, you cry out for mercy and receive his grace and receive his love, and then you become a saint. And you don't have to have a council of cardinals sitting in the Vatican to give you that honor. Christ bestows that upon you. Not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. It is an identity of relationship. What God has conferred upon you through his son. And that's the only way to become a saint. You cannot make yourself a saint. You cannot work really hard to become a saint. You become a saint in one way and one way only. And that is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That when he died, his life, death, and resurrection on the cross is then conferred to you. You get his glory, you get his righteousness, and you get his love, and you are a saint. And I I used to use that term a lot, and not so much anymore, I don't know why. But I used to love to refer to my brothers as saints of God, because it would highlight in my mind who you really are. You're saints, set apart. You have God's love set upon you. Not because of anything you did, but because he decided to do just that. I'll give you a real practical example. We have a family, some friends of ours, they have four biological kids, all redheads. It's fantastic. I love redheads, okay? So I got the four redheads. They adopted four daughters, four children. And two they adopted from Haiti. And they were twins. Um, Two young ladies that were in an orphanage. And they didn't have a name, they didn't have, they had parents, but the parents couldn't afford them, so they were put into an orphanage. And our our friends decided they were going to go down, and they took these two, they chose these two, they brought them out of the orphanage, they brought them up to Scotts Valley, and now they are part of this family. Now, one of the young ladies, she's acclimated quite well to the United States. She has, she's doing well in school. She's a vibrant member of their family. Um, real no issues. The other young lady is really suffering from trust issues and abandonment issues. And so she's getting into a lot of trouble, doing things that her sister's not doing. Now, if you were to look at the two and you'd say, you know, the one young lady, she's, she's assimilated well. She's part of the family. She's, she's being good. She's more saintly. Hmm? And then you would say, this other young lady, you know, she hasn't made the transition too well. She's coming in. She's getting in trouble. She's not submitting to her parents. She's rebelling. She's more sinly. I know it's not a word, but it fits, right? She's more sinly. And if you were to make that observation, that distinction, scripturally, it would be bogus. Why? Because she... Just like her sister is now part of this family, she is loved passionately by her new parents. She has a new name that was given to her by her parents. She has six brothers and sisters that love her dearly and that she loves dearly. She is part of that family. She has a new identity. She has a new name, regardless of her behavior, whether it's good or it's bad. She is a saint in that family. And it's no different for us in Christ. Jesus Christ, when he called you and when he saved you, he made you a saint in him. That's why Paul says, saints in Christ Jesus. It's not saint in yourself. You can't do it to yourself. You can't make yourself a saint. But the key is, it's relational, not moral. It's your identity in God through Jesus Christ because he's put his love on you, not all the good things that you're doing or trying to do to get him to love you. Do you see? It's the opposite direction. You already have his love, which makes you a saint, not work really hard. Now, does that mean it it has nothing to do with your moral behavior? Well, of course not. It will affect it dramatically, right? You will change as a saint of God. His grace and mercy and his love on you and you having the Holy Spirit will cause you to live differently. In fact, we will say it's an inevitable result of you becoming a saint. But it doesn't make you one. And that gives us a good indication... As to why Paul had such a deep love for the church. I mean, some of the criticisms of the church, many of the criticisms of the church, are valid today. And the church is and has always been a pretty messed up group of people, right? I mean, we're pretty messed up. We come in as sinners, we work out our lives as sinners. When we die, by God's grace, we'll be glorified and we won't have that. But while we're here on earth and while we're bumping together and moving around together and living together and working together, there's going to be trials and suffering and hardship and arguments and I don't like you very much. Messed up. And the the reason that is, when you come in, you know, our motto isn't like it was in the 1970s, the pop psychology, I'm okay, you're okay. Our motto of the church is, I'm messed up and you're messed up. Let's get together, right? I mean, that's it. That's, that's true. The prerequisite is not get good, be good, and then come into the church. The prerequisite is, I'm a sinner before holy God. I need to be saved. Come into the church. It has rightly been said that the church is a hospital for sinners, A convalescent for the soul. I love that. Because that gives me a much more accurate picture. To convalescent together. A place where there will be healing. In fact, Jesus puts his stamp on this. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So it would be odd for us to gather and commune and relate and grow and think that we're all just going to be these wonderfully morally upright people. Never sinning, never causing problems, never getting arguments. That would be foolish. If we're talking about the church, because the church is the place where the sinner comes and says, I'm weak, and we give them strength through Christ. The church is a place where the sinner comes to be set free from their sins. The church is a place where people are hurting and they can receive comfort, where they are lonely and they receive companionship, where they're lost and they find a home. And so this is a place of of healing, and sanctuary is supposed to be that. And Paul, what's so amazing, Paul is fully aware of this. If you don't think that he doesn't know the troubles in the church, go back and read First and 2 Corinthians. He knows what the church is like. And yet he still says, I love the church. I rejoice in the church. I will work my whole life for the church. So he was aware of the fact that he is dealing with saints. This is the Apostle Paul. And he realized that he's talking about and dealing with and praying for and relating to and trying to grow saints of God. And that's why he says this, I love it, in verse 3, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Every time I think of you, I thank God for you. Do you pray like that? Every time you think of your brothers and sisters, do you thank God for them? Or do you pray curses down on them? Oh, Lord, you need to straighten that person's life up. They're making me miserable. Is that your prayer? or do you thank God for them do you rejoice for them and then he continues listen he says being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus and do you know what paul is saying here and this is radical and i'm not going to spend too much time but he's saying i'm seeing you in your future glory I'm seeing you as a saint of God who one day will be sinless and glorious and rule in the kingdom of Christ and you'll rule over angels. And Paul says, I can love you and rejoice over you and pray for you because I see you as you really are in your future potential. In fact, he makes it imminently clear in Colossians chapter 3. Listen to this. Paul saying, of the saints, of the church, you have been, past tense, raised with Christ, who was seated at the right hand of God, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And do you see what's happened? This eternal reality of the saints of God, already in in essence being seated at the right hand of God in Christ right now, he sees us like that. And therefore, he prays for us like that. And he rejoices over us like that. That's how we ought to be if we see each other correctly. And when that happens, if that's lived out in a community of faithful people, so we gather together and we go, Saint, 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 Saint. You one day will be glorious. You one day will be beautiful. You one day will be so powerful. You rule over angels. Saint, 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 Saint. Hello, Saint. (laughs) Right? Hello, brother. Hello, sister how that would transform the community. Do you know why it will transform? Because it will be real community. Because real community is where people really know each other. Really, really, really. Let's use a lot of those, right? Really know each other. And how do we really know each other? We know this, that we're all sinners. That's real. We know that we've been saved by God's grace. That's real. And we know that we are saints of God that one day will be seated with Christ and rule with Him in His kingdom. That's real. And if we see each other like that, as we really are, not all the false pretenses, not all the, the hypocrisy where we come in and we act and we say, oh, I'm okay, I'm okay, but really I'm falling apart. Everything's good with my life, but really everything is disintegrating in my life. When we begin to relate to one another like that, that community is changed. Because in that community, there's security, there's safety, there's transparency, there's a real love that will change people. When true identity comes out, so the compelling question is, is this how you relate to one another? Is this how we at Camden relate to one another as saints of God? Or are we, are we too critical? Are we condemning? Do we view each other, especially when we don't get along with thoughts of judgment and condemnation and, oh, I wish something would happen to that person, I wish they would just leave? Do we view others? Maybe not so much in that light, but I will relate to you to the degree that I can get something out of you. What can you give me? Comfort? Money? Time? An ear? I like to talk. Will you listen to me talk? Maybe you'll buy me food because I'm hungry all the time. Or maybe the saints are just expendable to you. Take them or leave them. If they're you know, I don't mind them too much. You know, we're not too bad of people. If they're here, great. If they're not, that's okay too. Or do you see yourself as a member of a community of saints that are convalescing together, that are to be growing together as a family, that are to be healing one another and engage in the process of redeeming one another, a real sense of I'm part of a family that is here for the purpose of growing and maturing and nurturing and being nurtured. Do you see one another correctly as we truly are in Christ right now and with the full potential of who we will become Or will you be like Fred Lynch? Who's Fred Lynch? Some of my sports buffs might know. Fred Lynch has the dubious honor of being a basketball coach, a high school basketball coach at Landley High School in Wilmington, North Carolina, who has the dubious honor of cutting arguably the best basketball player in the history of the game from his high school varsity team. His name was Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan walked onto his court As a 5'11 sophomore, and Fred Lynch said, you are too short to play for me, and sent him packing. Michael Jordan, do you see your brothers and sisters as being too short, too ugly, too verbose, too impatient? Or do you see them as saints of God, and do you see them in their full potential of who they are and who they will become in Christ Jesus, in that glorified state. We must, if we want to have the love of, for the church that Christ had, that Paul had, then we must see each other in our true identity. Second thing, though, you've got to see is the common grace. Look at verse 7. Paul says in verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you, this love, this joy. It's an overwhelming sense of joy for them. Since I have you in my heart, for whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And what Paul is saying is so simple and yet so profound. He says, listen, whether I'm in prison or I'm proclaiming the gospel, whether you know, I'm suffering or things are good in my life, he says, I rejoice over you because we're in this together. It's not just me doing the missionary work and you back there praying for me and sending me money. We're in this together. Why? Because it's is God's common grace among us. It's his grace that binds us together. It's the grace that's doing all the work anyway. And he's saying anything good that I'm doing is because of God. Any success that Paul's experiencing in prison or out of prison... Any, any righteousness that he sees taking place in the lives of those in Philippi. Any transformation of character. Any suffering that's coming into their lives. We can say that for ourselves. Any time that we overcome sin and we overcome it, we turn from it, we repent. Anytime time we bear any fruit of any kind that's good, real good fruit, we can say it is the result of God's grace in our life. And because of that, Paul was able... To rejoice over it. Paul, there's no room for pride or power struggle in the body of Christ. And Paul got that. Do we get it? He says this. When Paul says, I have confidence, not in your faith, not in in your will, not in your calling. He says, I have faith that God will make you and turn you into the people that he desires you to be. He's saying, it's God's grace. Therefore, it's his grace that's doing everything. Everything. And I I put my faith in that. That God will be faithful to finish this. And that means this. Paul saying, I have faith and I'm confident that God will make you a more forgiving people. That you will forgive when you ought to and you will receive forgiveness when you ought to. He says, I have faith that you will become a people, a real people that stick together. Even when the times are tough. That you won't leave, that you won't fly away, that you'll stay And you'll work things out. Paul says, I have faith that you will love one another correctly and that you will extend to one another an unmerited favor just as Christ extends it to us. Paul has absolute confidence in God changing them and creating really a radical community that is other centered, that is other based, not self centered. When Paul was writing this, he's writing it from prison. And he says in verse 8, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is extraordinary. This man's in prison. And yet he has this incredible desire for the people at Philippi. He's excited about their faithfulness, as we'll see as we move on the letter. He's excited about their service. He's excited about the joy that he's seeing in their community. He's excited about it. And yet his circumstances are not so good. This is an important principle, that your relationships with one another are not determined by your personal circumstances. The Apostle Paul reveals something astounding to us, that when things are good, it's easy to rejoice. When things are good in your life, it's easy to rejoice for other people when things are good in their life, right? I mean, we get that. If things are good for me, and things are good for you, then I'm happy for you. But if things are not so good for me, and I'm suffering, and I'm in pain, and your life's going great... My natural tendency is to get angry, to become jealous, to covet what you have. Maybe you've been asked God with a fist saying, why are you blessing them and not me? What did I do? Paul doesn't reveal that at all. Paul is suffering. Paul's in prison and he's rejoicing deeply over their faith and their love and their growth. He says, I want want to be there with you, but I'm not. I'm so thankful that you're doing well. (laughs) Is that how we respond to one another? There's even a weirder tendency. And I thought about this and tried to put my finger on it and I... I, I can understand it from a sinful standpoint, but we do something as a, as a Western culture. When things aren't going well in our lives, we, we are not the kind of friends that we are when things are going really well. Have you noticed that? I'm a better friend to you when my life is good, but when my life's not so good, I'm not the friend that I'm supposed to be. In fact, what we do is we pull away and we hide. And sometimes we leave completely. I'm struggling, I'm in sin, my life's not going well, poof, I go away. I disappear. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, "I want to be with you. I'm in prison. I want to be with you. I want to rejoice with you. I want to grow with you." And what I love about this is that Paul gives us this fantastic relational understanding that is centered and grounded in the cross of Christ, because he's loving them as Christ loves them, and as Christ loves us, loves us. He says, "We're partners in this." And he gets that, and he's saying, "If I'm, if I'm suffering, you're suffering. If you're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. And that's what true community, true unity is really about, right? If we're going through life together, then when you're struggling, I'm struggling. When you're joyful, I'm joyful. And we relate together and we commune together. But do we? Very practically, you're looking for a job. Your best friend gets a job. Your best friend gets the job that you actually wanted to have. What is your first response? <clears> hey. <throat> Maybe you and your friend put in the application at the exact same time. Maybe you helped your friend actually write their resume and then your friend got the job. What is your response? Is it, Lord, I praise you for finding my brother or sister this job? Or is it, Lord, that's my job. How dare you give it to them? I mean, is it a rejoicing when, when your friend finds that perfect someone who doesn't really exist, but they find the perfect someone and they get engaged and they get married and you're waiting for that perfect someone? Do you rejoice? Or do you covet? When you're trying to get pregnant and your, your sister in Christ is just one after the other, here come the babies and you cannot get pregnant, is it, pray, I praise God for her fertility? Or is it, why not me, Lord? Why not me? Do you become covetous? Do you become angry? Do you allow that bitter root? And do you ask yourself questions like, don't I deserve it? In fact, Lord, I know their life well. And I think I deserve it more than they do. I deserve the husband. I deserve the job. I deserve the 22 kids, right? You say, that's not a blessing, is it? The Apostle Paul was brought out of himself because of his love and joy for Christ that compelled him to have a love and joy for them. He was brought out of himself. He wasn't overwhelmed with his circumstances. He wasn't wasn't groveling in prison saying, oh, you should be in prison too. He was rejoicing. There's something else too that happens here that causes or should cause us to be brought out of ourselves. And that's the mission that we're called to, which is so much greater than our little tiny individual lives. That We see it here in this passage that we're called to the mission of the gospel. And it is a purpose. It is a calling that infinitely supersedes whatever circumstances that are taking place for us. The immediate circumstances. You see what happens is sin causes us to, especially as we get older. And I haven't figured this one out either. Lots of time to meditate in the next 50 years I guess. Um, It causes us to become more risk averse the older we get. To hold on more tightly to what we have. Right? I mean, to be... If, if your whole life is about you, your job, pay, feeding yourself, maybe your family, paying your bills, getting your education, getting the degree, living that, retiring, if it's just about you, that's a really small, I, I don't mean this, pathetic little life. Right? And the more you do that, the more inward turn you become, the more you will pine away. The more you will become less of who you're supposed to be. But if you see that the mission, that the church, the gospel of grace mission the great purpose and the great calling that we've been called to, when you engage in that, it draws you out of yourself. It sets you on a collective path with your brothers and sisters to engage in the redemption of all of creation. It's quite a calling to actually bring the gospel in our lives to the world in every capacity, not just in terms of people um, being saved. We think of that in that narrow sense. But all of redemption Impacting all of creation. This is the calling of the church. In fact, look at verses 4 and 5. Paul says, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, We have this in common, this grand process of restoration. It's fantastic. By God's grace, I've been called into it. By God's grace, you've been called into it. And now collectively, we can move as a church to bring restoration and healing to the world through the gospel of grace, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it it certainly starts with the restoration of the Father, because that's fundamentally broken. When we sinned and we were cast out of the garden, the relationship between man and God was fractured. And so it starts there. But that's just the beginning. When our relationship with God is made right through Jesus Christ, through the gospel of grace, then everything else can be set right. And if you've spent any time, even in the last month, just looking at life and looking at the world, it seems like everything needs to be restored. I mean, everything that we have has been perverted and twisted and needs restoration. And so who's going to do it? Who's going to bring restoration? Who's supposed to do it? The saints of God. The church. You do know that we have the one true mission given to mankind, and that is to bring the gospel of grace for a total restoration. Not just man and woman being restored to God, But man and woman be restored to one another. We bring the gospel of reconciliation to marriages, to heal marriages. We bring it into the family so that right relationships can exist between parent and child. We bring it into the workplace, right? Because in the workplace, you say, I go to work and I feel like a slave and I feel like I'm used and I feel like I'm mistreated. You bring the gospel into the workplace. You bring the gospel into the environment, I mean, we look around and we see what's taking place. And we are to be stewards of that. And so we bring the gospel of reconciliation and restoration to the environment, to the world. We see oppression and we see, we see racism and we see genocide. Who but the church of Christ is to bring restitution and resolution to that? You hear economic solutions. You hear political solutions. You hear social solutions. But who's offering the spiritual solution? If it's not the church of Christ, who's going to bring that? Because only we, yes, this is exclusive. Only we have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the church of Jesus Christ has the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that means we must take it out. And it must be intertwined and interwoven into every aspect of society. No part of society does not need to be restored. And you have that restoration in Christ. And the beautiful thing is, when this begins to take place, when churches grab onto this And they become part of this larger movement. Not just about me, my salvation, my sanctification. One day God glorify me. But the restoration of the universe, of the world. God is glorified. When you counsel your friends who are going through a real rough patch in their marriage. And they're contemplating divorce. And you bring the gospel of grace into that dialogue. And they sit and they listen and they hear. And they say, you know what? That's right. That's true. And they stay together and they work it out. Not only does it bless them. And not only does it bless their children. But it's glorious to God. Why? Because it's a testimony to the entire world. Of who he is. And that power to make things right. To restore and make right what is broken and fractured. Every time. God's reputation is increased. Every time we move in the gospel of grace to bring healing and restoration, I mean, do you think of it in those terms outside of yourself to restore everything, everything? I mean, what, what could we not talk about? Music—it needs restoration badly. I mean, have you listened to music today? I'm not a big—I'm not a big guy who listens to, but I, I listen to enough to go. That's really bad. That needs restoration. I mean, I don't know how many movies that I make it 15 minutes to. I'm like, oh, I can't. Someone restore the movie. What is it? Marriages, schooling, the environment, politics, economics. Would anybody here disagree that our economic system needs radical restoration? Where's it going to come from? Printing more money? That's the government's idea. Where's it going to come from? It must come from a real hope and a real gospel, a real good news. And that means it must come from the church. It must come from the church. So in order to love the church, you must know your true identity in Christ as a saint. You must have and understand the common grace, the power of God to restore and make things new. And you must see the common love. And this is the third thing that's necessary. In verse 9, Paul says, this is my prayer. Listen, Kurt did a wonderful job expounding on this. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight. And what Paul is saying here is, I have, I have such a passionate love for Christ that I have a passionate love for his people too. And he's praying that God would take a stick and stir up in the, in the brothers and sisters at Philippi and the church throughout the world today as a, as a circuit letter. He would stir up a deep, abounding love in our hearts for Christ and for one another. That we would be known as a people abounding in love. That would define us. And it would be a love, listen, it would be a love that Christ has displayed for us already. We would love one another as Christ currently loves us. And you know what that means? that I'm not talking about some really twisted, perverted, Hollywood-esque, um, romantic, weaselly type of love. You know what, when we use that term, we think of these you know, really bad romance novels with those funky pictures on the cover. And they are. Yeah, I don't know how that helps them sell at all. Um, We think of love in that way. I'm talking about a biblical love that's a manly love. So guys don't have to go, oh, I'm feeling effeminized here. A manly love that is other-centered, that is a love that is predominantly concerned about the physical, psychological, spiritual, emotional well-being of other people. That it's not Just about me. It's about others as well. A love that permeates a community and defines that community as being others centered. The well-being of others is what defines who we are as people. He prays that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth and insight. And that's exactly how Christ loves us now. How so? Knowledge. In full recognition of who we are. Listen closely, saints. Because we don't do this well. Not just Camden, but the church doesn't do this well. Christ loves us with full knowledge of exactly who we are. Who are we? we? We're sinners. We're wretched, we're broken, we're fallen. We make mistakes again and again and again. And Christ says, I'm putting my love on you with full knowledge of that. In essence, I'm loving you just as you are right now. And I'm loving you with full insight. And the word in the Greek with full insight is perception or discernment. And it's in relation to who you will become. And so Christ loves us in a profound way because he says, I love you right now just as you are. And I love you so deeply that I won't leave you where you are. I love you just as you are, and I love you too much to leave you where you are. So I will do everything to grow you and to nurture you and to make you into the person that you were created to be, pure and holy and radiant and beautiful. And this is the, this is the love that Christ has for us. In fact, he demands it of us and demands it for one another. And we ought to as well. That we love each other just as we are. You say, that, that's tough, man. Really? Yes, right now and I will love you to who you're supposed to be to your full maturation in Christ I was trying to think of a good example this was pathetic but it's the best I got so bear with me All right? you're gonna, you want apples and the apples have, are very expensive right now at Safeway so you want apples you're going to plant an apple tree so you can have your own apples and not have to buy them at Safeway so you go and you get this. You like, you know, Granny Smith, and you get this Granny Smith apple tree, and you put it in your backyard, and you're taking great care, and you dig the right size hole, you put in the right size dirt, and you fertilize it, and you water it, and after a year, this tree is still just pathetic. It's not growing. I mean, you love this tree, and you love the apples, and you can't wait, but this tree's pathetic. So you go to the, you go to the nursery, and they say, oh, you need this and this, and you put more vitamin D, and some, and it's still not growing. Two years later, three years later, it's still pathetic, and there's no fruit. You don't go, yeah, uh, so what, right? You want the fruit. You expect the fruit. You bought the tree to plant it, not to waste water or fur. You bought the tree with the expectation that it would what? That it would grow and it would thrive and it would produce much fruit. And so you're not okay with it being this little Charlie Brown sapling that's never going to grow. How much more so for the creator of the universe who has placed his love and his mercy on you, calling you a saint... How much more concerned do you think he is about your spiritual maturation? And not just so he can eat your apples. But so that you can be the very person that you were created to be in the beginning. Someone to worship him. Pure. Paul says at the end of the passage, pure and blameless. Filled with the fruit of righteousness. He expects that of us. We are to expect that of one another. So you say, all right, I, I, got, I got that, but I find it really difficult to love people. I'm just going to be flat out honest with the pastor. I just have trouble loving people. I don't like most people, let alone love them. So that's hard, okay? And you're telling me I've got to love them exactly as they are, and you've got to tell them I've got to love them so much, I've got to make them better or help make them better. That's not, that's not easy. So what, what, what tools do I need? I'll give you three quickly. One, you've got to be in community. I mean, period. You cannot grow yourself or grow others if you're not in community. So fun I'm not even gonna expand on that. That makes that's just plain sense. Two, three, four people. If you haven't got them in your life, you're not gonna grow together. Okay? You need community number one. Number two, you absolutely have to, by the grace of God and the love of Jesus Christ, love people right now exactly as they are. You know what that means? That means you don't have your relational prerequisite checklist. You all Okay, come on, you got to shake your heads. We, have, we all have these, right? You will love that person who wears the pleated khakis, hangs out at Starbucks, drives the overpriced European car, and loves really expensive Thai soup. And that's your person, right? That's the person you relate to. and hang. But if they're not in that category, then you know what? You'll tolerate them, you'll be nice to them, but you will not love them. That's not the community of believers. The community of believers is, I am going to love you Apart from my e-harmony checklist of who I say I will love. I will love you as Christ loves me. And think about it. Christ loved you when you were dead in your sins and transgressions. Christ loved you when you hated him. And he says, now you love one another as I have loved you. Right now. That means we look around and we go, you know what? I'm not going to wait for you to get better. I'm not going to wait for you to dress a little better or talk a little better or shave or comb your hair or brush your teeth. I'm not. I'm going to love you right now just as you are. Real agape, other-centered love. Difficult. But that's just the second piece. The third piece is even harder. Because the third piece requires a willingness to love people into their fullness in Christ. Why? Paul gives us the answer in Ephesians 4. He says this. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. Listen. And become mature. Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Now, do you know what that means? Paul is saying... Not only do you have to love one another exactly as you are right now, but you have to love them into their spiritual maturation, into who they're supposed to be in Christ Jesus. And that means this, that we care for each other, not because of a bank account or what we can get out of a person, not because of how well they cook or the friends that they have, that we care for them as they are right now, and at the same time, We will love them into who they should be. Their authentic self in Christ. And I got to say, you know, in contemplating that this week, doesn't every single person want that? That kind of love. Where someone says to you, I love you right now, exactly as you are. And I know you. And you're pretty screwed up. And I love you anyway, right now, exactly as you are. With all, with all of your idiosyncrasies and your foibles and your troubles, I love you right now. And I love you so much. I'm not going to be okay with you staying as you are. I'm going to love you and who you're supposed to be. If you're listening at all, you say, this is, that's brutal. Because if I've got to love people exactly as they are right now, that means I've got to be humble and patient. <laughs> right? I mean, I've got to be humble enough to go, I'm so glad I'm not like that, right? i got to be humble enough to love them. i got to be patient enough to love them in spite of all the struggles. And then you're telling me I have to be so secure in myself, so satisfied in Christ, that I will love them by being bold and holding them accountable and, I, and helping them see their sin. And I'll be humble enough to have them hold me accountable and show me my sin. That I will, I will actually intervene... When I can help, even though it may cause our relationship to go astray. I will step in for my brother and sister. Even if that means they might not like me anymore. They might not they might want to spend time with me. They might not want to go to Starbucks and drive my expensive European car and have that expensive Thai soup. I will I will step in and I will love them like that. At my own expense, at my own honor. I had an uncle that used to take rocks and he would put them in a tumbler. And I was a little kid, but I was fascinated. And I thought I was going to become rich like this. This was my get rich quick scheme as a 10-year-old. He would take these rocks. He'd find out in this yard. And he'd put them in a tumbler for 48 hours or so. And they would come out. And they would go in nasty looking rocks. And they'd come out all smooth. And then he'd take them and he'd polish them up. And they were brilliant. And then he would make jewelry out of them it wasn't the best looking jewelry but it was you know i thought this is you know this is like making diamonds right we can do it like this and what was so amazing is he would take an ordinary rock that was full of jagged edges and all these lumps on it and he would put it into this process and as the rocks would collide with each other in the water they would knock all the rough edges off and over time they would make themselves smooth the body of christ is a place where we're supposed to be bumping into each other. There's supposed to be grinding taking place, right? There's supposed to be contention. And there's supposed to be, you know, where we, where we come against each other and we rub on each other. Because in that very process, which most of us hate, we're being refined. We're being sanctified. We're being purified. But you know what that means? That means you got to stay in it. You've got to be part of the community and you've got to stay in the community. I mean, really in it. That's not just going to church on Sunday. That's not enough. That means being here, being with people who know you and love you, hearing people say, I love you, this is not right, coming alongside of you and rubbing you in ways you're not going to want to be rubbed. But if you do that, not for 48 hours, but for 48 years, decades, if you have people in your life that are brothers and sisters in Christ whom you know and love, and you stick together, and you stay together, and you stay the course. And you, you know, we have the Proverbs, says iron sharpens iron. We know that proverb. You know, that, that also means that one of the pieces of iron has to be harder than the other so that you can rub against that and get sharper. You stick together. We stick together. And Paul was revealing that to us here, that this community is to be a community of a long obedience in the same direction as one, Together. I love the example because it tells us that when times get real difficult, we're not supposed to just jump ship. We're supposed to hunker down. Fasten your rope. Stick more. Engage the brother and sister whom you say you really love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I was reading through him this week, and he he said something that just blew me away. If you don't love someone so much that you're willing to say, listen, I love you, brother. And I'm going to come alongside you. I'm going to rub you right now. And it's going to hurt. Because I'm, I'm bringing accountability into your life. But if I leave you like this, your path's sure destruction. So I'm going to come up to you. And I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to do it humbly. I'm going to do it gently. But I'm going to do it. I'm going to really love you. Bonhoeffer said, Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another person to their sin. Let me read it again. Nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another person their sin. You know what that means? That means you can be un, un, display an ungodly tenderness toward a brother or sister in Christ. Say, let him go. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to do anything. I want to keep the peace. I don't want him getting mad at me. I'm just going to remain silent. That is fundamentally wicked and hateful. It's not loving. It's not loving at all. If you're not willing to say, I love you as you are and I love you for who you will become and I will work to that end with Christ to see you grow. To really see you grow. Real practically. I have three boys. My three sons. Some of you are old enough to know. Thank you, Ron. Three three areas in my life. We're in community organically. They're in my house. Right? I mean, so we're... It's forced community. Whether you like it or not, we're going to live together. We're going to stay together at least until they're 18 I kick them out, right? So we're together now. Community. So we have that. Number two, I love them as they are. Right now. Every parent, every parent knows this and what this is like. I love them when they were multiplying cells in Lori's womb. I loved them then. When we first found out there was already a love, person I'd never seen before. Passionate love for them. I loved them when they were little and did everything in their power to make themselves unlovable. You know, I mean, I'm, you know, the diarrhea divers, that is unlovable. The 2 a.m. vomiting fest, unlovable. The temper tantrums, the anxiety, the separation anxiety when they're like two and you try to go have dinner with your wife after five years. Don't do the math. And then you sit, right, and there, you can't leave. Unlovable. But you love them in spite of that. You just love them. And if someone said to you, you know, in spite of your kid's temper tantrum, do you still love them? You say, what, are you an idiot? Of course I do. I love them more than my own life. Passionately. Right? And I love them for who God wants them to become. Right? So I want to love them just as they are. Not because, you know, they can, you know, hopefully make money in the future and support me in retirement. Or, you know, I love them exactly as they are. And I will love them in a godly manner for who they should become. And that means I love them into their maturation. Because that that means this. I will will train them. I will teach them. Train. Some of you, that's in the Hebrew, that's Hanak. And that means a narrow path. We're to train our children. Not just let them go do. To train. To teach. I will encourage them. I will rebuke them. I will discipline them. Why? Because I love them, and I want them to become faithful disciples of Jesus Christ and follow Christ. I want them to be godly, faithful husbands to their wives, who love and nourish their wives as Christ loves and nurses the church. I want that for them. I want them to become fathers who are equally passionate about their children. I want them to become members of a body of Christ that love the church like Paul loves the church and serve, and that takes willful engagement, rubbing them. Sometimes as parents will say, I feel like that's all I do all day long. Rub, rub, rub. That's parenting. What did you think it was going to be? I mean, did you have that image of TV? You go to the carnival, you put them on the merry-go-round, and you know, no, it's constant rubbing, right? But if you rub long enough and you rub hard enough in the grace of God over a period of time, guess what's going to happen? You put the children in in the rock tumbler They're gonna come out shiny, smooth, not perfect, Christ, but smoother. We are to do this with one another. We as a church are supposed to have this type of identity and grace and love here at Camden. And you go, you know, that all sounds so majestical and sounds so impossible. Because you're telling me to see my brothers and sisters as saints and I don't. I see them more as sinners. You're telling me to, to really understand and, and express and live out the common grace that we have in God. And, I, and I, see, I see more curse than grace. And you're telling me to love my brothers and sisters as Christ loves me, as I am, and who I can be. And I don't, I don't have much love. The problem, listen, don't go, okay, I'm going to try harder. The problem is that you haven't experienced or not experienced to the degree that you need to the love that Christ has for you, and that he displayed. Because three very simple things, profound things happened. Jesus Christ gave up his identity as the Son of God. In fact, in chapter 2, Paul says he made himself nothing. Taking the very, very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. And you know why he did that? He gave up his identity so that you could give up your identity. What's your identity? Your fundamental identity is a sinner. And he gave up his identity so you could give up yours. And in giving up yours, you get his. A new identity, a new name. You're adopted, just like those sisters, into the family of God. And God gives you a new name and he writes it down. But not only that, Jesus Christ gave up God's grace for his wrath fundamentally said, he cried out, he praised the Lord, if there's any other way than the cross, but your will be done. And he took the wrath instead. Why? So that you wouldn't have to take the wrath and you could have the grace. It was the great exchange. And you say, well, why, why would the Savior, why would the Son of God do that for me if I was so wretched and so ugly? Because of his radical love for you just as you are. That's what's so profound. When he died for you, you still hated him. When he saved you, you still hated him. Right? I mean, we looked at that last week briefly. He says, I'm going to pour out my love and my grace on you in spite of your hatred for me. Why? Because of who he is and because of who he desired you to become. He redeemed us by his blood and his body. And then he set his love on us with this intention that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until he comes again in glory. It's this Christ, it's this cross-born love that you must know and then your love for him that will enable you to love the body and there's no other way to do it. If you come here and you go, I'm going to try really hard, you will fail. But if you say, I'm going to pursue the love that Christ poured out on me so that I might love his children then you will succeed gloriously. Not because of your effort, but because of his. You will see one another as saints of God. You will see the power of God's grace working amongst us. And then you will love one another as we're called to love. When I think about this and I pray about this, it's, such a, it's, an exciting, it's so exciting to think about a place where we can come and share in a common identity, a common grace, and a common love as God's children. A place where we can come weak and be made strong. Where we can come lonely and have comfort and companionship. Where we can come totally lost and find a home. What a great place for our friends and our family. What a great place for this community. And what great glory it will bring to our living God who is worthy of it all. The Apostle Paul starts off this letter... And right out of the gates, he goes and he says, this is what I see. Do you see the church as Paul does? Do you see the church as Christ does? Or do you have an image that the culture has placed upon it? I pray the former. I pray as Christ that you might see and engage one another as saints of God. Let's pray. I pray, Father, this is not one of those sermons that just falls on deaf ears. That we hear it and we say, that sounds nice, but there's no way I can be like that. I pray instead, Lord, that you would take these very words from the Apostle Paul. And that you would cause them to go deep into us that we would see at this very moment that we are loved radically by Christ just as we are and that we would see at this very moment he is working to grow us into the people that you desire us to be. I pray we would have that kind of love for one another. That love will change a community, it will change a culture and it can change a world. That kind of love. Give us this wisdom this morning not to have a deaf ear to this but to hear these eternal truths and embrace its power in Christ's holy name. Amen.